I think CEOs should be replaced by AI. That makes way more sense to me. Because, mm. I mean, if you think about what their job is, all these inputs they have coming in and have to make decisions on, that seems like a much better use of it. If you're if you're looking at, like, how do you augment a company with AI, mm. I, I would make the CEO an AI and possibly even, like, open source it to some of the employees so you have this ai and employees get to actually work on the model for the ceo i don't know that'd be an interesting experiment we get well, fired on day one we're all fired yo what's up everyone this is the shape and design podcast where we show you how the world is shaped by design through story strategies and tactics and maybe you'll learn something from that huh i'm mitchell bernstein today we had an amazing guest jed bridges a good friend of pascal and mine we worked with him in the past and this was one of, I think, the best episodes yet, really. We talked building in the Web3 space, building and designing his own studio, which is a really interesting topic. We also talked a lot about how AI and creativity kind of go hand in hand and, and impact each other. But also, we talked about a topic not often discussed, religion and, and design. So you're really going to want to stick around for this stuff. It's a great episode. But before you listen to it, remember our agreement. If you're on Spotify or YouTube, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this, please like and subscribe and give us a five-star rating. We really, really appreciate it. It'll help keep this podcast free for you. And also, you'll get to know when we drop new episodes. And I think that you'll really appreciate that. So we appreciate you listening to this. And now, let's get into it. How's it going? Good. How are you, Mitchell? Pretty fucking good. <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to finally see you and talk to you. Thanks for coming on the pod. Dude, I'm so happy to and excited to talk. It's been a while, so looking so, forward to it. I'm actually going to pull up real fast some of the tweets. I asked the audience, <laughs> our lovely audience, really your audience, not even my audience. I said, you know, what should we ask Jed when it comes on the podcast? And some of them include, instead, just sit in silence, favorite croc, and if crocs made socks with the same circle cutouts with Jed cop the croc socks or not and i don't know how to say that 10 times fast but can't but would you cop the crocs socks or not i think philosophically i'm opposed to socks with crocs because mm. if you need that kind of setup you should just get the lined crocs and they have a solution for that so no would not cop <laughs> can, can you explain this whole croc saga and like why you're obsessed with Crocs, but like really like why are you obsessed with Crocs? Yeah, yeah. It it was never meant to be a big thing, man. But uh, basically I was gifted a pair of Crocs a couple years ago, I think for my birthday. And I was, I just started laughing. I was like, these are not cool. You know, that's kind of the general <laughs> consensus. But I actually started wearing them. And, uh, and, you know, where I live, there's lots of weather. And so, and in the summer, there's a lot of swimming, and I don't know. I just got, I got the, I got to taste and see, right? And what I found was like, okay, these actually are super comfortable. They're, they're great, amphibious, right? So I can wear them when I'm working outside, when I'm gardening. I can immediately walk into water with them. Perfect, seamless transition, and they last a long time. Like the quality is pretty high. I don't know. I just like slowly started to fall in love with them. And so I started like tweeting about them too, because what I found, it's really around creativity. It's like, 
okay, you have this thing that is like universally not cool. Like, how can I, how can I talk about it in a way that is like funny and entertaining, but also there is like a truth side to it too, where it's like, I actually do think they're good footwear now, even though they're <laughs> like, they look funny from a utility standpoint, like I like them and they work good. And then you pair that with the fact that I actually do think they're, because their product is so funny and like universally not their marketing strategy to counter that has actually been incredible to watch over the last few years. So like their stock during the pandemic lockdowns like soared because the theory was like people didn't care what they looked like anymore because they're home to lockdown. Mm-hmm. Right. So their sales actually soared. And I don't know who's on their and then marketing teams, but some of the work is actually really incredible. And I actually see them building a brand like nobody else with their partnerships, their brand strategy, their marketing is like really high quality. I don't know. That's how it started. It was like, how can you take this thing that's like, you know, not very interesting or cool and then talk about it? And it basically is a forcing function for me to think creatively. So half the time I'm kidding, half the time I'm not. That's that's the hard part. It's so interesting because like you're you're not just like I'm gonna tweet about it. You're like all in. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I want I want to pause there and go a little bit back in time to your background, kind of like where you came from in design to where you are now, and then we can dive more into the Crocs later. <laughs> but we have a couple of topics to talk about. So why don't you give a little brief rundown of your history, and then uh, we can get to that. Yeah, so I'm old. I'm an older millennial designer now. I've been doing this a while, but. I started designing when I was a kid, started playing music, got into playing in a lot of bands. And then like a lot of people, you just, you start to need things designed, right? Posters, shirts, websites. So right at the get-go, I would say I went down a path of like design generalism, just out of necessity. You just need all these things when you're in a band. And so I took that upon myself because I found it interesting. I had been playing around with Photoshop at the time and kind of took it as an opportunity to learn more. And then when I was in high school, I actually like needed money. <laughs> so I worked full time, but I still needed, I had some bills that I needed to pay. So I started taking on freelance clients when I wasn't working at my, my part-time job. Not not full-time, sorry. It was a part-time job. And uh, and that was incredible because I was like, okay, I can wash dishes for minimum wage or I can work on a computer and design these books for this lady for like $20 an hour. And like that blew my mind <laughs> at the time. That was bucks. a lot more than minimum wage. So yeah. that's kind of what led me down a path of going to school for design. And then after that, I just kind of followed my interests and passions, which took me down a road of sort of bouncing between design agencies and startups. And then after kind of bigger orgs, larger startups and and larger companies and organizations. Nice. Nice. So now you are a master designer and a croc wearer. (laughs) Cool. All right. So a couple of things we we want to talk about because you also work, which you didn't mention, you also work in the Web3 crypto space and you also kind of did a little project at your house. So let's talk about that first because I know that's top of mind. So you... Explain this. You built a barn as an office? Yeah, yeah. So I moved about a year ago, and I've been working remote for a little over, I think, seven years now. And I've never had, like, a proper office. Like, I'm looking at your office now, just like, I 
clearly need to work on my background a little. <laughs> I, I can help you. I'll give you some pointers. Yeah, yeah. The office I'm in now is newly built. And when I, I moved, the property I, I now own had about a 400 square foot horse barn on it in a pretty dilapidated state, a lot of rot. And I won't get into the detail, but it was gross <laughs> on the inside. So I was going to build a separate detached office from my house behind the barn. But after diving into some of the details of how much that would cost and how long it would take, I was going to bulldoze the barn. We just kind of decided, let's just renovate the barn. It would cost a little more, but it would be like 400 square feet versus 100. And so I essentially isolated about 120 square feet from my office. And it's like a beautiful barn now. The outside and inside has been completely redone. I have my office. I actually have a home gym right here. And yeah, it's pretty incredible. Oh, yeah, it was fun getting to design your own workspace. I still have some bookshelves to put up behind me. A few other things going on that I need some to get some art up on the wall. But for the most part, it's done. It's nice having a place that is only dedicated to my design work. So that's all that happens here. I do have a reading chair for, you know, my life for reading. But for the most part, that's it. This, in the past, it's been a bedroom and an office or a guest room and an office or a kid's room and an office. And now I just have an office. So it's been incredible. Yeah. So it's insulated. It's warm. It's quiet. So tell me about like that, that thought of you, you said before you had like other things and the office. Cause right now I have, I took over one of the room, one of the guest rooms in our house and I just covered it in soundproofing and wood panels and lights and stuff. And it looks like a, like an actual studio. But I'm next to a bunch of other things and the laundry room can go off and the dogs are barking sometimes, which I might have to stop the recording and like go tend to that. But it's it is nice to finally have my own space where I can close the door and then I can just do work. And then when I'm done with work or done with the computer, done with that, I can walk out and close the door again. And now I'm in a different space. So what is like the importance to you of having designed your own space? Yeah, well. Kind of similar to what you just mentioned. I noticed, so I have two small children and a beautiful wife. Once they actually become mobile and start walking around and and you can actually play with them and, you know, interact in a lot of different ways. I I noticed it was affecting my time with her to not have a really strong separation of work and life. And so kind of taking it one step further and just having a door to close, like I need an office detached from my house. Like, I just wanted to make an extreme like separation between work and and life with my family. And so that's kind of why it's like meaningful to me to have my own space is I work really hard and really focused all day. And then when I'm done, I can like close and lock the door and I walk about 30 to my house. Right. And and that's something I really needed, like more discipline around. You know, before that, I would say, like, I have my laptop. I can. I can work as much as I want. I can move it from room to room. And I would find myself at night, like in bed on my laptop, just finishing up a few things, writing a few emails, just because I love what I do. You know, I really love design. I love the team I work with and I like what I'm working on. It's, you know, a passion of mine. So, so I had to force a little more separation, I think, you know, just because I am so interested in it and enjoy it so much. And that's been really good. I actually, I originally didn't have a laptop. I got a Mac mini because I didn't want to be able to bring even a laptop into my house from my That's office. Smart. Yeah. And I ended up selling it and getting a, a 
new MacBook Air because there were times, I noticed there were times when I wanted to work on something like personal work for fun. And that's when it was kind of a bummer to have to walk across the yard into my office, like I say, at like 11 at night. It was like, oh, I just want to like make a quick little logo idea for personal stuff and not not like my day job. And so I just to switch back to the Mac, the Mac mini. I'm sorry, switch off the Mac mini to the MacBook Air. So, yeah, I think I found a good balance now. I almost, I don't know, I almost like never work unless I'm standing in my office. And that was kind of the goal. That's what I wanted. So now you, you built your own WeWork basically, where you can go to. And <laughs> yeah, do yeah. I could set a few people in here probably and start <laughs> start cleaning up. Twenty five dollars a day, Mitchell, if you want to come work with me. Oh heck yeah, that's awesome! Thank you so much for the opportunity. <laughs> There's no bathroom facilities, but I do have a small pasture if nature were to call. So oh perfect, yeah. I mean, I don't use toilets anyways. I mean, awesome. I just you know, here's a carpet, right? Oh, I have so many questions. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm I'm interested to see your journey continue with this office. So keep me updated on, on that. I want to switch gears a little bit towards Web3 because that's the space that you work in. So yeah. can you describe a little bit about what you do in the Web3 space? Just a little bit and then we'll, we'll have some questions yeah. about that. Yeah. So I, I got into Bitcoin in, I think, 20, around 2017 and quickly found it very compelling as a future technology I wanted to work on. So I got into the Web3 space, I think in 2018. And specifically, I was working at an enterprise blockchain company with an internal incubator. And so I got to work on about six different products at once, which is really fun. I like variety. But I was working on everything from like Bitcoin mining optimization software to secure, like decentralized security analytics, all kinds of enterprise applications. And there was also a consulting arm of that branch that I got to work on. So talking to Amazon about, you know, how do we offer a decentralized composable server like product? And we did some consulting and stuff with them and MasterCard. So I really quickly got a ton of exposure to crypto and uh, kind of immediately was sort of drawn to like, how do we get this into the hands of just everyday people? So right now I'm focusing on on-ramps and off-ramps. So People just coming into Web3 and Bitcoin experiences for the first time. How do we make that really seamless and easy? So yeah, it's a, it's been a cool space to see evolve. I, I think when I first got into it, the joke was that we have like all these amazing products built, but there's no users. There's no user base. <laughs> and, and you fast forward to now, and it's kind of reversed almost where like a ton of interest in it. There's a ton of people that want it. But there's not a ton of really, really concrete use cases that people can, you know, immediately apply to their situation. So, yeah, a bit of reversal there. But overall, it's like a very exciting space to be in and a lot of do, cool do, things going on. Do you find that it's there's not like a match of the use case of some of this Web3 technology to user needs? Like the technology is being built, but it's being built. Yeah. almost like in isolation away from matching somebody's expectation because most people don't care about the technology. They don't care about the server right. and, and crap. They just want to use Facebook. They just want to use Twitter. They just, you know. Yeah. So is there a, the pro, like a disconnect there? Is that the problem? I think the problem is that a lot of crypto gets, that word gets bundled with a lot of things that aren't really crypto. <laughs> and so... I was just talking about this with a friend the other night. They were asking me about, you know, crypto and, and what you quickly learn is their understanding of what that even is, is not, not really correct. So, I mean, just to, just to break it apart a little bit, there's a couple 
branches of crypto that I think are worth isolating. One is, so what are the ideals and the, the big ideas and the why behind crypto? And I feel like what's missing is that is the hardest part, right? So people might not understand they have a use case for it because they don't have that why. It's like, why do we need decentralization? Why do we need open autonomous code? Why, why do we need better solutions for self-custody of your money? Why do we need these things? And so when you come to them and you say, hey, we have, we have decentralized apps and products and services and they're like, cool. So what? Like I use those already, right? So I think, I think that's the hard work is it just takes so long to educate on the wipe. Um, you know, I think we'll eventually get there and it is getting more mainstream, you know, the last few years. And I think so. So that's one thing is just like we have to focus on educating people behind the why and then they will see then they will see the use case emerge from that. We right now, I think there's an overemphasis on starting with the use case and the end product. And so that's going to change over time. But then there's also this other part to what you asked that is, I think a lot of Web3 will just get baked into the background tech and people don't even necessarily need to know that there's a transition that's happened. So with a lot of Web3, there just are superior, there just is superior technology powering under the hood. And that just will be, I think eventually just will get mainstream adoption. And people, for, for those instances, people won't need to know why. They'll just need to carry on as usual. And in the background, a massive change would have already taken place. Okay, so that's interesting because it sounded like almost like the two points you made are not exactly, but they're almost counter to each other. Like you have to teach people why and then they don't yeah. need to know why. Yeah, yeah. So so for the use case and adoption part, I think yeah. people need to know like like why this is important. And then in Web3 right now, I think what's most exciting is the layer twos that are getting spread. Can, can you explain you a little bit about that too? What's that? Can you explain what a layer two is to people who don't know what that is? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's been a, a step back in Web3 in the last few months and people are reevaluating like, okay, what do we actually need an infrastructure level to make sure that the incentives get baked in properly on onto the layer? And so by layer one, I mean like whatever core blockchain the, the uh, services or application or use case is running on. And then a layer two is usually just some sort of additional technology that, that helps build a product on top of that. So, so I think what's happening now is if you take like Block, for example, Jack Dorsey's company, they're focusing on the technological infrastructure for specific categories of Web3. So personal identity, you know, that's, that's one entire tech stack that they're working on. Payments, that's another entire separate layer two tech stack they can work on. And, and so those things having a really clear focus, I think are what is eventually going to just bring that tech into the background of people's existing experiences. If you think about banking, right? This is one of the things that brought me into Web3. But if you learn about how banks work and how money works, you start to realize how much is actually happening behind the scenes to settle transactions. It can take like 10 days, you know, for some, you swipe your card and it feels like it's done, but it's not really. With Web3, you, you can actually process and settle a transaction instantly. And so 
institutions are incentivized to bake this into the background because of some of the superior aspects of it. And uh, so, yeah, I guess that's a better way to think about it to more quickly answer your question. For, for a service and application, I think users need to know why. But then for these, like, inst- for institutional adoption, users will just continue to use those things as usual as it gets brought in. So then what's the role of a designer in all of this? In Web3. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where do you see yourself inside yeah. this big bucket of all these things going on? Yeah. Well, I think the role of me personally, the designer, is to try to make sure that the incentives get maintained throughout the creation of the product in a healthy way and that the core values behind Web3 don't get diluted as the products get defined and designed and built. I think we've seen a lot of examples of that happening lately where people started out well-intentioned and, uh, you know, you make small compromises along the way and it doesn't end well, right? (laughs) Yeah. I see, you know, my role as a designer is we have this good thing that has the power for change if we let it. And so I try to maintain some of those core values and make sure those get instilled into the product, not compromise those things for the sake of growth or usage metric, which is very tempting. I also think on the design side, we need to come up with better mental models to explain what these things are. So if you think about some of the ones we have right now, like 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 a wallet, right? That's the common one. Is that a good mental model for a user with Web3? It's like, oh, your wallet holds things that you care about. So that's good. But if you open, you know, say Coinbase wallet, there's a web browser in it. There's There's an app store. There's all these other metaphors within the metaphor. And so it quickly starts to break down. So that's another key role I see myself in is trying to think through ways we can communicate this stuff that's cohesive because the current metaphors just aren't working. And a lot of that is happening right now in like user research. And yeah, I would say primarily like working with research partners. Okay, nice. So for Web3, we already went through the biggest challenges, went through your role. Now, where do you see it kind of going towards in the next couple of years, especially with the recent like, like bank crisis, like, you know, there's a little bit of a bull run. People are starting to, you know, freak out a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I think that there's like right now a great opportunity for whatever is Web3 and whatever is crypto to be like on, on the main stage right now to say, hey, you know, there's something happening. Why don't you try this other product out? Not to take advantage of the situation, but like this is exactly why all this stuff was built in the first place, right? Like to yep. prevent people from losing their money that is in fact theirs that they earned they spent time trying to build out they put energy into the world to get a monetary value in return where where do you see it kind of going yeah well i think in a lot of ways we will see a return to some of the core values that you know seem to have gotten lost i think on a you know from a personal user perspective if something sounds too good to be true it probably is and i see a lot of the recent collapses that happened stemming from just sort of a, this like hype greed sort of mentality. I think when you're risking your money, we're going to see just a return to just more conservative, conservative strategies. And I, I view, I view everything that's happened this last year as a good thing because I think we're going to see smarter investments from people investing in Web3 where they maybe weren't necessarily doing enough due diligence before. So we're, we're going to see, I think less investment happening in the space in a good way. 
And we saw this with Web2 as well. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but you if you had like a like Instagram, but but with stickers, like you could just get like a million dollars, you know, like to get funding. That's all done. That ride is over. And I view that as a very good thing. We need to refocus. And I think we need to return to like the basic ideas that, okay, what does this really empower and why? And so in the future, I just see a doubling down of personal identity, ownership, self-sovereignty date of your data, transacting in decentralized and private ways, um, and then just improving legacy technology that we have now. So I would say the biggest thing is probably going to be the adoption of more stable coin usage into large financial financial institutions for some of the reason, reasons I mentioned earlier. Right. Okay, cool. When getting into Web3, I don't know how much you really understood about Web3. I don't know if you've, you know, you mentioned you had experience kind of doing like an incubator thing where there's like multiple different projects going on at the same time. So you got your hands kind of wet or feet wet in that, in that area, area where you're able to get a knowledge, like a huge knowledge grasp real fast. For those who are trying to get into this space, what would you recommend to them? Yeah, I would say get familiar with some of these like new ideas and foundational principles for how to build a better decentralized web in the future and find which category really resonates with you and aligns with you. Mm-hmm. I personally really resonate with the idea of just self-sovereign monetary system. I think that's partially because when I first started in the space, all of the engineering team I worked with was in Venezuela. And so it got pretty, I don't know, it it kind of became more more than just like my job for me, getting to know them. We we spent time together in person, but these really, really talented engineers were building because they literally needed this technology so that they could transact as their primary method of, of money. So, you know, back then it was building some stuff on Ethereum and their local currencies were getting devalued weekly, like so heavily their life savings were just evaporating and they were building in that mode. And so I became really passionate about getting people alternative monetary systems because that's just how I started. But I would just encourage anyone to just look at some of the core ideas, principles and values behind the space and figure out, you know, what what resonates with you the most, like what, what seems the most interesting. Figure out what that is and then just dive into all the communities going on around that particular category. There's so much, so many communities online in Discord, on Twitter, even GitHub. There's some really great ones. Cool. Thanks for that. I have a weird question and I don't know how you take this one. I was thinking about it for a while and I, I never asked you since the entire time we've known each other, but I, I really wish I did earlier on because that we could have maybe gotten further in the conversation. But if you don't want to talk about it, just tell me no. Like say no go or like pass or whatever. Religion and design. Yeah. Are you a religious person? Yeah. Yeah. How has religion influenced your design? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, at a high level, I would say as a theist. So I, I believe there's a God that exists, right? I think there's good reasons to believe that. I don't think there's good reasons to believe he doesn't exist that I'm aware of. So my view of God is one that is omniscient, all-powerful, created everything we see around us. And to me, that makes sense of the world from what we see 
in scientific efforts, in like, basically, we are uncovering information and knowledge over time through science. And the more we do, to me, the more we see that it all works together in some design sort of way, right? So why is the, why is the universe structured perfectly on this mathematical grid? Why, why does this all work and fit together? You can answer that question a few ways. To me, the most compelling and, and simple answer is it was, it was created and designed to be that way. I don't know. I, I guess for me, to be a designer is sort of just tapping in to this structure and grid that is all around us and everything and getting to like almost uncover and be part of that in some weird way. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I, I'm ask, thinking, more, ask more. Ask more. Yeah. 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 I, I, I've been thinking a lot about it because exactly what you just said, you know, if you, I don't know if you listen to Andrew Huberman. The name, I know the name. Does he have a podcast? He does have a podcast. He's, okay. he's a professor at Stanford, runs a lab there and does a podcast that he like okay. teaches his own. For those who don't listen to it and that are listening to this podcast, you should go check it out. And he basically talks a lot about science, about a bunch of things about the body, right? Okay. And he recently did one on water, like, you know, answering a lot of questions about water. He does one about like muscles and, and tissue, one about skeletal system or, or, or the nervous system. And like even one for Thanksgiving, which I thought was really good about thankfulness and like how that can be used to like, I think, calm you down and like, make you feel more gratitude. And like, how do you actually get to that point? Blah, 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 blah. Anyways, what I love about his podcast and his lectures are that they, they don't tell you how to just hack the body to do something with it. Although that's kind of like the goal of it's like how, you know, how do you get bigger? How do you feel more fit? You know, whatever. How do you be more emotionally in control? But it's almost like you just said, everything in the body was designed a specific yeah. way. He's literally just telling you, oh, here's the door. And then I'm going to give you the key to open the door. And now you have access to all this information. But it wasn't a coincidence that all these things are happening. And now they're just discovering. It. It's like these things already existed. And we're now playing into it and seeing how can we manipulate it in a way that's more beneficial to us because we understand it more we can become more healthy we can become more fit more emotionally intelligent more more just awake more a better sleep so i think it's really interesting that you said that yeah now going back to design because this podcast is called the shaping design podcast because it's about how our guests shape the world through design and how design really shapes them too right shaping the world through design mm -hmm. If the world is already designed and we are just uncovering it, why do we even have to do that? Why don't we just leave it as is and then enjoy it? Yeah. Well, because everything we put out, into, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject with one more part of this because everything we put out into the real world is an additional object. There's a very famous designer. I forgot his name. He's a Jewish designer and graphic designer, and he helped create really great things in the past, but it's very counter to Judaism being that the things he created were idolized by people. And in Judaism, there is no such thing as like an idol. Like you're not supposed to have any like idol, right. I, I, idols because you're supposed to worship God right. and anything else is, is whatever. So it, it, there's like a little counterintuitiveness to design and, and Judaism, at least religion, because we're trying mm. to create things that people love, but they're not treating. And I have a question after this about code and Bitcoin and crypto, sure. but you know, how do you see that? How do you see we like, I guess, play into that? Is that something yeah. that 
you're comfortable with or is that something that like you you disagree with or is there like a counterpoint to that yeah i think so i mean if you look at the world think that it is created it's it's beautiful right and i think as as we get to take part in that and design certain aspects of the world around us there's this i don't know that there's this view i have where we should try and hold true to what we already see existing as much as possible that's personally why i'm a fan of like you said should we just leave it well no i actually think we should go back i think i think things used to be better quality look better i think they used to be more beautiful in almost every every way <laughs> you think about architecture art i think mm -hmm. everything used to be you know a lot higher quality built for longevity and then somewhere along the way of industrialism everything started getting fast cheap quick uglier like and so i don't think we should just leave it as i actually would prefer to go back to the way things were but obviously I'm not saying we want to remove all technological advances i'm it would have been better to take what we learned and what we knew and then brought new technology in to enhance and improve that. Hmm. But instead, we kind of just tore everything down and replaced it with, in my opinion, like a inferior alternative. So can you give me like an example of that? Like, yeah, yeah. Architecture. I mean, architecture. Yeah, sure. You know, there's there's buildings that have been standing and in perfect condition for over a thousand years. The way the ways those were built, I'm not talking about the. I wouldn't say there were like savory cultural practices. Like a lot of human suffering went into that. That's not good. Right? We have, we we don't want that at all. <laughs> of course not. No, no, no. But in terms of the design, right? Things were approached for longevity, for sustainability, to last a long time, and to accomplish like a unique set of goals, and and that's why they were built. And I look at buildings now, and I'm like. Okay, there's another rectangle, like they'll tear it down in 20 years and they'll build a different rectangle. And, you know, and uh, yeah, I guess it's a scaling issue. I don't know. That's just one example. I guess another one would be writing or possibly art. I think there, because of the cost that used to be associated with publishing, writing, there was such a higher level of quality coming out because they just wouldn't publish anything that that wasn't really great you know so i would say you know i think it's good that anyone can publish anything at any time but it creates so much information you have to sift through now to find those gems where whereas before even in the you know 70s and 80s i still prefer books like to blogs just because the, the level of quality is so much higher when you have the cost of printing kind of guiding the final output mm -hmm. so i don't know how do you apply that to a digital space i haven't thought too much about it but there's something about, you know, that's like the classic, like quality versus accessibility. So, so that it's, it's so great that you pointed that out because it also, I think ties in a little bit to a Twitter feud that we just had <laughs> about AI and creativity. Yes. And, you know, you're talking a lot about like the humanity of how these structures were created. And maybe it's because of a devotion to a higher power that's significantly a, a huge part of it at least a lot of cases right there, a lot of them are used for religious purposes or driven by religious purposes and yeah now... can, can i say one more thing on yeah that? yeah i so i guess one thing I, I should have mentioned is i think as a designer i i do better to assume 
that the world was created rationally and structured and with order. So, and, and I think if you, if you approach design with that mindset, I think my, my work comes out better. And I, I think a lot of things come out better when you, when you approach even just life with that mindset of this was all created for a purpose with rational order in mind. And we just have to uncover what that was. Right. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the universities, the first universities were established for education with that in mind. The idea was the universe and world has been created rationally and structured and in order around us. Let's start to dive into that and use science to uncover what is actually here and how it's working under that framework. So I don't know. I just find that framework really helpful in design is to, it, it would be like if you like turned on a computer and just, you know, and disregarded the fact that it's been programmed by people for a particular reason and in order and structured rationally. And, like, you know, it's the same with, with everything. So yeah, I just find that, that, that worldview really helpful in design personally. Yeah, I think that you're correct about 99% of the time on that, except Adobe software is not structured with any structure at all. I mean, I get errors like, not crash, Figma, sorry. Not even Figma by Adobe? Shout out to Figma. <laughs> you're wearing a Figma hat? Yeah. Oh, my God. I love Figma. You know, I have, I have my, my <laughs> quarrels with, with Figma, but it, it is a great tool, and it's, it's built by great people. So shout out to Figma. You have to so, blur out the logo, or is that – they're not a sponsor. <laughs> not yet. Not yet, not yet. I think I said in the past I hate Figma, so I don't think they're ever going to sponsor the podcast, but yellow. Yeah. So I actually want to get back onto that topic a little bit because, like I said before, like religion drove so much devotion to then spending time. Like this is the effort somebody's going to put in thinking that they're going to get something back in return and that they can they can bring about the beauty of what already exists. But now we have ai overlords we have ai making decisions on behalf of people and in a lot of cases some people think that ai is sentient already from the google issue with lambda i think which is now probably way surpassed with gpt4 but it's interesting to me because we used to think that because something was so detailed so oriented it has a higher status because people put so much more effort into it but ai can do digital things so fast so yeah. much better than people in some cases that can, can write it yeah. can now use images and video so i want to continue that feud a little bit and go back and forth and spar a little bit i think that's a weakness of it by the way yeah 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 i that think it's too I fast think, yeah yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so that that was my kind of problem with it like i i love your point about the humanity about all the creation and effort put into things in the past and bringing that back mm-hmm. i think ai might be pushing us away from that in some mm. cases some cases it can be an alternative to generating ideas but then because they're not human created from the human created there they're just an adaptation of somebody else using somebody else's idea yeah it's just we're now stuck in a smaller cycle than when we were before when people were just discovering like a sharing ideas about religion sharing ideas about architecture sharing these mathematical formulas around the world where it slowly evolved allegedly over time yeah and now it's like boom you can do anything almost any almost anything with gbt4 mm-hmm. yeah i'm not i'm not a, I, I don't think ai is as cool as sexual things i'm sorry i just i think it's really fun it's cool to play with i i use it like 
every day, pretty much I'm experimenting with everything. I think AI is humanity. Like it, mm. it's, it doesn't work super well. It's flawed. It, it's limited. Like it sounds like a human to me and, <laughs> and, and yeah. it, it can't think very well. Like it, I don't know. I, as far as I, I don't see how that's possible. I'm not an AI expert, but to me, AI searches humanity and it parses text and assembles the best, what it thinks is the best options it finds. The text and it's parsing and what it finds is human generated, right? It's not. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mitchell, I could be totally wrong here. It doesn't create new information. It, it reassembles existing information. Now, maybe you could, I'm sure someone could argue a point that no, it's creating new information that didn't exist before. I haven't, I don't think I've seen examples of that. So, so to me, a human generating creative ideas, I don't, maybe it's because I can't see the references their mind is processing, but it seems like they do come from nowhere. Like, I don't know, something about AI, knowing that it's parsing that has been human generated, it's finding the best text that's matching, you know, the prompt and then, and then it's meshing stuff together that already existed. There's nothing new being created. And so to me, it seems very limited. It seems like it would be limited to what information we give it. And I know there are examples of it identifying new molecular structures, new things in medicine that we did not know before. Yeah, AlphaGo, but, I think. Or but it was called. still parsing information we gave it. it, it yeah. So it didn't create new information. Am I right there? Yeah, it... it Yes and I'm no. I'm asking because you worked a little closer to the stuff than yeah, I Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So so yes and no. When I was working on AI stuff and, and redesign the Watson Studio platform, we were told by researchers and managers and designers and developers a lot of these things weren't possible. That was only a couple of years ago. Now they're all possible and more. And so it made me realize that a lot of people really don't understand the capabilities of how fast AI is getting. And Pascal and I both worked on the same group where we can see all the stuff being created. And I worked with specifically, like I almost actually worked with the, the researchers that created the, the Watson bot that like went on Jeopardy and like work with them on something else. And it's so fascinating, this technology to me. But to answer your question, the AI just rearranges information in a new way, but it has to be told it. Mm -hmm. However, it also begs the question, isn't that what we do too? And then, because like, you know. Yeah. Well, that's like I was yeah. saying. To me, it is humanity. It's like, you know. <laughs> well, to me, it's, it's, it's a mirror of humanity and we're so close to getting it to be human, but I think we're never going to get there. Because, well, I think we'll get there, but I think it's going to pass us in a spectrum of what is humanity, what is not humanity. Because humanity, there has to be something human about it to be humanity, right? I don't know exactly how to articulate it yet, but the craftsmanship is something that we value as humans, right? The definition of a human is what a, a bipedal mammal that can walk on two legs, that, that has a certain jaw type. I heard even that like we are defined actually by a bone in the ear from most animals or something. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of definitions of like what a, what a human is to a lot of people. But AI can be everything and, and nothing at once, right? 
It can be everything that we want. I don't know. I I feel like you're, I I don't know. Does AI even think like, well, okay. So it doesn't doesn't think the same way, but it thinks just not in a way that we have. Yeah. I think it will be able to soon when, as soon as we are able to unlock quantum for just more meaningful tasks, like as soon as you get the ability to process information as fast and as much as a human brain can, I don't see why it couldn't. Well, okay, so I guess one of the reasons I'm skeptical mm-hmm. is based around how closed these models seem to be, like seeding in mm-hmm. the AI. And it just seems like they're so limited. And what I mean by that is, like, you mentioned Watson, right? And what is the, the Go AI I think it's AlphaGo. That's the Google AlphaGo. thing, right? So so my understanding of AlphaGo is like, that's a really powerful AI, right? Mm-hmm. And But all it knows is how to play this game really, really well. It doesn't know what a Go board is. It doesn't know what the pieces look like. It doesn't know that it's trying to defeat a player. Like, it, like all it knows is these strings of text. And you give it one string as a prompt, it, and it searches the system and gives you the next best output and but it has no spatial awareness it has no awareness of the game outside of these strings of text and and that's where my skepticism comes Mm -hmm. from it's like even if it were embodied as a robot it wouldn't know how to do how to play it wouldn't know how to move a piece or a board or spatial awareness or a sense of like self-awareness and and it, it can't read the player's movements. Like it can't do anything except tell it what move was made. It will tell you the next best move. And, and that's all formatted in these strings of text. And so to me, that's not thinking it at all. It's just like it has no, no awareness of anything outside of these movements. And that's like not that impressive to me. I'm so sorry. Okay, so I, I, I would push back a little bit on that, not, not okay. because I'm an expert in AlphaGo, but te- technically it does understand spatial awareness in the sense that it know because it has to use image recognition to know the player's moves so it has to actually have a camera attached to it so it has one type of sense which is oh, vision okay. so it actually so i think that part of it is like enabling all the senses so there's already work being done on smell and taste which i think is disgusting in some cases but i think it's really cool like imagine licking your phone and tasting like a treat before you buy it on amazon or something like that but I, I I agree with you in some degree there, though. Uh, I don't want to be too unfair and be like, oh, no, that's the... because I think that you do have a point. But I think that as we keep developing these things, all we're doing is essentially layering one on top of the other, which is kind of like how the brain works, essentially. Like it's different pieces that do different functions that work in tandem together to create an output or like understand the input and then give you an output that sends off to the rest of the system. So I don't want to like argue too much about it. But how do we then move forward with AI and, 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 and maintaining creativity where we enable AI to do the best it can do, but also we enable humans to do the best we can do? Because we shouldn't, in my opinion, replace humans altogether. We should augment humans. That was IBM's goal originally, to augment humanity, not replace it with AI. So can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, creativity seems to be the main use case right now of getting pushed really hard. And I certainly see a good use case for that, like for designers to adopt some of these new tools coming out. I I think I think I mentioned this to you before, but I, I view all the AI tools coming out 
has like an amplifier. So, so multiplication, not, not addition. And so you have a lot of designers where creativity is not their thing, right? They don't, they don't come up with a lot of creative ideas and that's fine. That's one skill set that's needed in design. I don't know if AI is going to help them that much with creativity. I think for those that are currently creative, it's going to amplify that, that ability they already have. And for those that aren't, it's, I think it's going to amplify the things that they're really good at. So it's going to help with efficiency, the speed of work, obviously. It's going to help with thinking, right? Thinking of, thinking of solutions to a problem. It's, I think it's going to help people with what they're already good at. I don't, I don't know if it's going to get, I don't work in addition, right? I don't think it's going to add new skills to, to, to what they can currently do. One thing that I remember talking to somebody actually at IBM, he was a data scientist, one of my favorite data scientists, Stefan Vanerstock. And he told me he was, he worked on an AI that can code itself. So it would like actually rebuild <laughs> and add stuff to itself. But he yeah. said that it was too stupid to like do something well, like I can code a bunch of stuff, but then not well. Mm-hmm. I was able to code a framework component by asking GPT-4 or GPT-3 at the time, ChatGPT, to code it for me. And then I said, I don't like the code. It's too long for me to copy. Can you simplify it? And it actually refactored itself. Yeah. So I think that there's a, a variety of things that are going to be enabled that aren't currently enabled for people who don't have technical expertise, can then get that expertise from yeah. a chatbot and do it for them, but also in the career space as well, like you said, enable further creativity and whatnot. I know we're, we're already up in time. Do you have a minute more? I or... have as much time as you want, yeah. Oh, um, awesome. So we got three more hours. Cool. So well, can... welcome to the Lex Friedman podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, okay, so on that note, okay, again, I think it's going to help me personally a lot, and I'm a, I'm a fan. But the response I'm seeing is just hilarious to me. So give me just a gut check here. So someone like uses AI to create the game Pong. This is a game that we made 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then they freak out that they made this game that that got programmed 60 years ago. Is that impressive to you? Like something to be excited about? Because when I see that, I'm like, but we made that like... 60 years ago like we already did that so you just did it again and i don't know i like why Mm -hmm. why is that exciting like what trying to help me here like i I, i'm looking for like not just new ways to do something we did a long time ago like i don't know to me that's like why are we why are we recreating stuff we've had for a very long time like so i don't know maybe they're out there but like what are the cool use cases where this is net new, right? This like, okay, I didn't see an example of this yesterday. This guy, he gave ChatGPT like $100. Did you see that? No, no. He yeah, gave no. it $100 and he said like, build me a business model online. I'll try and send you the, the yeah, thread. Please, it please. was amazing. I'll link it he below. Said, like, build, he said like, build me a business model online that I can, you know, and here's, I have a $100 budget. He gave it all these parameters. It actually came up with a business model around like referrals for green energy adoption. Like it actually built a business model for him. He actually implemented it. He had, he had AI make his logo and web like instantly. Mm-hmm. And I think the end of day one, his, he had turned his hundred dollars into $133, That's which is amazing. like a huge like margins. 
That's amazing. Wow. Wow. See, see, yeah. So, so I guess your pong example, it isn't a striking, like, like, wow, like, holy crap. But what's cool about it is, okay, now the AI is able to do tasks that we thought were very complicated that it can do its own, even just with a very simple instruction. Imagine being a child and doing that, right? But then yeah. tweaking a couple of things and then having your, like that's back to the creativity thing. Like the child can then use AI to be, be creative and, and leverage it to make maybe the same thing in, in, in essence, but tweaked and guided a different way that can address something else. So that's it's, like the small it enables thing. enables creativity. I think, yeah, I think it definitely yeah. enables creativity. I think it also, it also hurts creativity in, in, in a certain way, but yeah. So then your example about, about what you just said about the, the business plan and then the AI generated logos and stuff. I mean, didn't you, didn't, wasn't it you who tweeted Fiverr is going to re- replace AI? Yeah. I think, yeah. Fiverr with AI, that, that would be a deal breaker. Like we'd all yeah. just. We'd all be let go tomorrow, I think. Uh, essentially, but, uh, well, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. So, yeah, I, I just try and joke about the whole like designers are getting placed by AI or, or yeah. will if you want to adopt AI. <laughs> I just kind of laugh about that. Is I've been hearing that since I started design. It was, you know, first it was free resources, files you can download. Then there was like the bootstrap and foundation years. Bootstrap is going to replace the need for designers. And then it was things like Fiverr and all those really cheap services. And I don't know, I just, historic, the historic data is not frightening me when I hear that. I'm just, yeah, I've been hearing that since, yeah, for like 15 years. And I realize this is different because this is, this is a much, much, much more powerful automation tool. But even then, if, if I play out the scenarios in my head, it's like, okay, you have these big companies, they have designers and they have project managers or product managers. Who gets replaced by AI? And everyone jumps straight to the designer. And I'm like, well, wouldn't it be better to have a designer use the AI that is familiar with design, the latest there, familiar with user experience, and the latest there, and is an expert in those things, and then just teach them management? I don't know. To me, a designer with AI, and then and then that also acts as the PM, is much better than no designer and just a PM with AI. So, or how about again, how about just replace the PM with an AI? The, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I just think it's funny when everyone jumps straight to okay, yeah. this is a creative tool of AI application. Yeah, I think that it's so the designer gets replaced, yeah. and I I just don't see where a situation where that makes sense. But what if what I do see making sense, and I tweeted this the other day too. I think CEOs should be replaced by AI. That makes way more sense to me because mm. I mean. If you think about what their job is, all these inputs they have coming in and have to make decisions on, that seems like a much better use of it. If you're if you're looking at like how do you augment a company with AI, mm. I I would make the CEO an AI and possibly even like open source it to some of the employees. <laughs> so you have this AI and the employee get to actually work on the model for the CEO. Mm. I don't know. That'd be an interesting experiment. That uh, that'd be so interesting having a CEO as AI and then a DAO as like the organizational structure, yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. And then like there's an incentive to like help the system run better and help the you know CEO make better decisions by helping build the company. I can see that being a very interesting experiment. I we should do that. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. 
we get well, fired on day one. <laughs> we're all fired. Well, I think that eventually the AI, because now we have robotics, like you know, Boston Robotics, right? What is it called? Boston Dynamics. Boston Dynamics. There's now another company that's competing with Tesla on the AI robots. It's going to start oh, yeah. out, little, obviously. Little four foot ones. <laughs> yeah, little, little, little dudes. Little short kings. But I think that it's going to, I really do think that it's going to eventually replace us not maybe in our career lifetime, maybe, but we have to then build skills that are not replaceable by AI. And it's very difficult because AI is just regurgitating everything that we do faster than we can learn it. So I guess what skills then would you need to then be a great operator of AI as a creative person? Yeah, yeah. Well, just to push back on that last thought a little bit, this is, I, I think I mentioned earlier, the the argument from over efficiency, right? And if AI is let's say it goes quantum and it's able to do so so that thing I mentioned earlier, the guy put in a hundred dollars on day one, he got a hundred and thirty back. Let's say a big company decides to do that a billion times a day and they're making thirty billion dollars a day. And and hey, why not why not do that a trillion times a day? Because you can. AI and quantum. Well, that, at some point you hit this horizon, like you, you, you hit this point where it's so efficient and it works so well, it's just extracting everything out of the economy immediately. And all you have then is just total implosion, right? Like, like there's nothing, there is nothing at that point. So, I don't know. There's this, there's this view I have. If it were to do that, it would work so well and be so efficient that the economy that the company is relying on to make money would just self-implode because it would wipe out everything. And so, I don't know, I, if it truly goes that way, I don't think the company would be incentivized to turn that on because it would essentially, it, it, would, it would make it, it would be so valuable that it immediately diminished the value of money altogether. So does that, does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? I it think would it would a, make sense. If, it would generate so much wealth and value that all, all value would become meaningless. And so they, they actually wouldn't do well as a company like to do that. So I, I, I guess I don't, I can't follow why it would be meaning, like the value of money would be meaningless to other people because if they're getting paid by this system that is done everything, then you're just letting the system run itself and kind of keep going. The system has to have, um, t- not always, but typically... I believe typically AI systems are, are using like an incentive program to kind of measure if something is the right answer or the wrong answer. So a lot of machine learning models, you would say, this is a cat. This is a dog. This is not a dog. This is a cat. You go through that a lot. And that would tell the robot, you know, if they get it wrong, they lose a point. If they get it right, they get a point. So it's kind of like that system, but at, at a large scale, much more complex for this overarching AI Eventually, it's going to get very comfortable, I guess. So in that case, it has no incentive to change. And I don't think that anyone would be able to stop it at that point. I think we're doomed. Basically, what I'm saying is Elon Musk, please don't do this. But I I guess it would, it would, it would then ask us to like step out of this realm of like being just efficient. Because in my opinion, efficiency is the opposite of good design. It's it's the nemesis of design, really, of good design, because you're operating as 
so a designer is someone who is operating as a facilitator making things in a lot of cases beautiful but also more efficient right we have a utility aspect of our job but efficiency then eventually evolves and i've never seen it not evolve into it but and sometimes it can get out of it but evolves strictly into like a business thing business oriented it's always like about how do you profit how do you get more users how do you grow and it never goes backwards because it's too hard to go backwards it would actually hurt the company and then it would, it would shrink the company. So the company can't risk that. It's too big of a risk to then the shareholders, the company will go down and get bought and die. And that's the that's not the incentive of the company. The company is to grow and continue to grow and become a cancer essentially to other companies and, and others in society. So that's kind of my spiel about efficiency and, and good design is like we are also trying to be efficient, but I guess what is efficient if there's no need for the efficiency at all? Like it's just done for you completely like i think the movie her is a good example of that right? yeah. don't they like just write or something like so they don't have like real jobs or something like that i don't remember what, what it was but um, there's like know, i don't there's like a he movie works at like a greeting card store like he comes right up with the sayings yeah right but like if the ai is so smart and it can do everything for us there's nothing for us to do right there's me it's meaningless and then we're just 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 creating stuff but you know but there's no pressure there's no suffering like in brave new world the end of it like, mm-hmm. you know not to spoil it spoiler alert 100 years from now right 100 years behind he kills himself there's like no okay, reason but so that that's what i'm saying though so if that happened then that that basically pulls down the whole economy right mm-hmm. because you we've been replaced we don't have jobs anymore oh companies are outputting things that cost money and so that's what I was trying to get at was we don't have money anymore because we don't have jobs, but they need they need people to spend money on what AI is outputting. And so that's what I was trying to say was mm. at some point it becomes so efficient that it pulls down their bottom line. And now I understand there's hmm. the view that, well, we would have other jobs, but it's like, well, okay, maybe I'm talking about like, the super hype AI evangelist that says like, this is going to replace everything, like 70% of jobs. Okay. If it does, people don't have money to buy the products that those companies are using AI to output. And so that's what I was trying to say was the efficiency th- becomes a revenue killer, <laughs> like at some point, right? Well, for a long time, we've been using AI. Like we've been using AI for like, like what, 60 years or so? 60 years, yeah. Something like that. And we still have money, right? But you're talking about a level of AI that we can't even conceive yet because we have no idea how to build it, but it could technically exist in the future. Yeah. I, I think I agree with you that like it would like <clears throat> create efficiency into obsolescence, or as yes. a word, like to make us all obsolete. But then I'm sure it would figure out a way to assisting itself. If it's, if it's that smart to make it the like humanity obsolete, then it's pretty damn. They're pretty damn sure it's going to just figure out a way to like. Just mine its own materials, built its own robots, Terminator style, take over the world, you know, whatever. Probably. But, you know, humanity always wins in the end, right? I think so. <laughs> Even though we're flawed, you know, I think that we'll still win in the end. Yeah, so I think this was this was a great pod. Really, really enjoyed this chat, Jed. Really appreciate it. Oh, me too, man. I, I hope we can do it again soon. There's so gotta much- come on again. No. I would yeah, love we gotta, to. We gotta have a Pascal when he when he's available to come on the pod too. So all three of us can chat. But yeah, really appreciate it. Give my best to Pascal. Let's do it again soon. And uh, yeah, thanks, Mitch. It was good catching up. Mm-hmm.